Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. As part of its efforts to prop up the nation's coal industry, the Trump administration this week rolled back Obama-era regulations governing the disposal of contaminated waste from power plants. It's just one of the scores of environmental rules the Trump administration has tried to dismantle over the past three years. Others on the chopping block include regulations limiting vehicle emissions, fossil fuel exploration, on protected lands and the landmark National Environmental Policy Act, which requires environmental review of major development projects. Coming up, we'll review the Trump administration's record on the environment. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This week, the EPA finalized its plan to ease federal rules governing the disposal of contaminated waste from coal-fired power plants. The rollback is the latest in a long series of Trump administration actions that have tried to weaken or nullify major Obama-era environmental initiatives that tighten vehicle emission standards, protected federal lands from fossil fuel drilling, and set ambitious greenhouse gas reduction targets. This hour, we're going to talk about Trump's record and its impact on the environment and communities And joining us is Emily Holden, environmental reporter with The Guardian. Welcome, Emily Holden. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you and also glad to have Mustafa Santiago Ali, who is vice president of environmental justice, climate and community revitalization at the National Wildfire Federation. Good morning to you and welcome. Thank you. And we're also going to welcome Edith Elkine, who is uh, director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at the UC Berkeley School of Law, also host of the Climate Break podcast. Welcome, Edith. Ethan Elkin. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Michael. Good to be back. Good to have you back. And good morning to all of you. Let me begin, if I may, uh, Emily Holden, with you. And let's begin by just talking about what I mentioned in the introduction. It's quite current, in fact. Uh, under the Obama administration, um, essentially, uh, there was a necessity of upgrading wastewater systems to treat arsenic and mercury and other heavy metals. Essentially, we're dialing this back or the, under the Trump administration, they're 
taking the rules backward and uh, toxic wastewater pollution from coal plants now is uh, sort of in the mix again, isn't it? That's right. So the administration is doing a, a couple different things that essentially weaken what the Obama administration would have done. So these rules were supposed to begin in, <clears throat> in 2018, but they never took effect. And essentially, the Trump administration has said, uh, if you are a coal plant that's going to shut down by 2028, you really don't have to comply at all. And otherwise, you uh, have until 2025 to get these things done. And they've made the, the best filter for wastewater treatment, uh, the te best technology, optional instead of mandatory. It's about the third biggest source of toxic, uh, that is wastewater uh, and pollutants, uh, and has been linked uh, scientifically to many diseases, hasn't it? Yes. So we're talking largely about toxic heavy metals. So coal plants have uh, these things called scrubbers that are sort of like air filters that are supposed to collect some of the pollution and keep it from getting into the air. But the coal plant operators have to kind of rinse those off sometimes. And so the water that they use to do that, they are allowed to discharge into uh, local rivers and lakes. And we know that about a million Americans live within three miles of a coal plant and could be impacted by this. This is a pattern, though. I mean, this regulatory relief to the coal mining industry and the coal mining companies, uh, as coal continues to decline and as we shift more to cleaner and alternative and renewable energy. That's right. The coal industry has been in decline for many years, and that's largely because it just can't compete with cheaper natural gas and renewable power, but also because it's a huge contributor to climate change and companies are recognizing that and, and states are requiring them to move away from it as well. But the Trump administration has done everything that it can to try to help the coal industry. I think experts agree that they can't turn things around. They can't re rebuild the industry or bring back jobs that have been lost. Uh, but they have been able to kind of help around the edges with rollbacks like this. We're talking about President Trump's record on the environment. Emily Holden is with us, environment reporter for The Guardian. And the AP reported today, Emily, uh, uh, through a letter that was obtained by the Freedom of Information, uh, actually by the Center for Biological Diversity uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, that the Trump administration is essentially expediting and scaling back project reviews on over 60 major energy and infrastructure projects. Uh, I mean, this is uh, bound to create much more environmental harm, isn't it? Well, it's sort of complicated because this is coming out of an executive order that President Trump put out uh, in June, and he told agencies to use their emergency authorities to speed these projects with the idea that uh, they could help with economic development and this downturn that we've seen from the pandemic. Now, a lot of the projects on this list are things that were already being expedited, and some of them are things that have been in the courts for decades even, and there's only so much that the government can do to push them forward because there are just laws that prevent that. So certainly it's a concern that, you know, we may look back on projects that got approved and years from now say, well, maybe we didn't really consider fully what the impact would be on endangered species, or, or maybe the government didn't consult tribes in the way that they should. And Mustafa Santiago Ali, let me bring you into this. Mustafa Santiago Ali, again, is Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation. EPA is also weakening controls on mercury, and let's talk about that. It's a big victory for Trump donor Robert E. Murray, but it may not be all that good for the environment, to put it mildly. Well, it definitely isn't good for the environment. Uh, you know, it continues to cause these huge impacts. And, of course, the work that I did for 
over two decades was focusing on our most vulnerable communities, communities of color, lower wealth white communities and indigenous brothers and sisters. And, and these rollbacks that continue uh, play a big role in the chronic medical conditions that many of the folks who live in these sacrifice zones find themselves dealing with. And because of these chronic medical conditions, it also makes them more vulnerable to COVID-19 infections and deaths. So each time this administration rolls back or weakens the, the basic protections, if we're gonna have real talk, we should understand that in many instances, the things that we are talking about just give people the basic protections. So to take that away, uh, means that you do not necessarily value those lives who are going to be disproportionately impacted by the choices that you are making, literally saying that profits are more important than people. Well, I think it's uh, axiomatic that in the work you've done through the years, both in Democratic and Republican administrations, you've said on a number of occasions that you've never seen hurt like this uh, in terms of the impact on communities of color and vulnerable communities, including poor white people. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that this administration does so many egregious actions, even though they know the science, whether they support science or believe in science. We know without a doubt that we've got 100,000 plus people dying each year prematurely from air pollution. But yet they've continued to roll back those basic protections that are necessary for us to continue to shrink that number. Uh, and because of the actions that they're doing, um, if anyone has ever had a basic level of education, you would understand that it is going to increase the vulnerability of individuals and therefore increase the amount of folks who are getting sick and the amount of folks who are going to lose their lives. And yes, that is happening from where I come from in Appalachia uh, to inner city neighborhoods as well, the 48217 uh, in Detroit, which is the most polluted uh, zip code there, or in Cancer Alley. Uh, in Louisiana, running from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, founded by freed slaves, and they've had to deal with a number of these different types of uh, fossil fuel burning facilities, petrochemical facilities, without there being any real um, thought to how these people's lives are going to be impacted, either positively or negatively. And unfortunately, with all the actions we've seen, there has not been yet one positive action for those that we label as our most vulnerable communities, those environmental justice communities. Well, I know you gave congressional testimony back in October on all of this, especially on the effect of fossil fuels and uh, some statistics that were alarming in that testimony. People die prematurely from air pollution uh, more than from gun violence. And you've got about 13.4% of African-American children uh, in the United States who have asthma as opposed to about 7.3 of whites. In other words, we're talking about zip code health here tied to race and poverty. And the reality is that the Trump administration has, well, uh, let's put it as it is, exacerbated that and exacerbated it pretty dramatically. Without a doubt. You know, unfortunately, for those of us who are students of policy or students of history, we understand that uh, systemic racism has played a significant role in many of the impacts that we see both in housing and transportation and the environment and, of course, on the medical side. This administration has now filled those injustices with steroids, making them much more impactful, both in the moment uh, and in the future, because then we have to, you know, begin to dismantle, you know, all of these negative actions that this administration has put into place. Um, you mentioned asthma. We got 24 million folks in our country of asthma, 7 million kids, and disproportionately as African-American and Latinx children you know, who are the ones who are going to the emergency rooms and the ones who are losing their lives. So once again, to 
make these choices says that you don't care about our children and you definitely don't care about children of color when you know the numbers. That's the most difficult thing to wrap your mind around is that these folks know the numbers and they still continue to march down the road uh, of putting more people's lives in danger. And that doesn't make sense. And that should definitely not be American. Tied into COVID-19 too, isn't it? It's most definitely tied into COVID-19. We know that communities of color and lower wealth communities and indigenous brothers and sisters are much more likely to be located closely to these you know, polluting facilities. So if we know that, and we also know that there is a connection to the chronic medical conditions, the cancers, the liver and kidney diseases, the lung diseases, that then make you more vulnerable to COVID-19. And of course, we also understand that PM 2.5, and I have a feeling that PM 10 will also be in the mix here, um, you know, that it plays a role um, in the virus and making folks more vulnerable and caring and all these other types of things that people are really beginning to unpack. So if we know this and we know the amount of people who have been infected by this virus and how many people have lost their lives and the numbers continue to grow, then it doesn't make sense to do anything that would exacerbate that. We're talking, if you just joined us, about President Trump's record on the environment with Emily Holden, Mustafa Santiago Ali, and we've been talking just a moment with Ethan Elkin, but we can also uh, bring you into the conversation. That is, you, our listeners, in fact, we invite you to join us. We're going to just take a quick break here, but we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you not only in terms of what you see and feel and experience as the impact of the Trump administration's environmental policies, but certainly any questions you may have for our panel and you can join us now at our toll-free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Please feel free to join the conversation and be part of the program with your thoughts and feelings and any questions and comments you might have. Again, the number for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. I'd like to hear your involvement in this. And as I said, Ethan Elkin will be joining us in a moment. Ethan Elkin is director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law and host of the Climate Break podcast. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about President Trump's record on the environment with Emily Holden, environment reporter with The Guardian, and Mustafa Santiago Ali, who is Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate, and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation, and Ethan Elkine, who is Director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law and host of the Climate Break podcast. And Ethan, I want to go right to you on this. When you look at all these rollbacks, and even a new administration could have years to reverse all of them. I mean, we're talking not only about energy, public lands, water, wildlife, EPA cutting back uh, and actually allowing increase uh, in herbicides like uh, uh, atrazine. Uh, but you have said, and I'm interested in feeling and finding out why you feel this way, that the most important rollback of all maybe, at least arguably, the weakening of the fuel economy standards. Talk about that. 
Sure. Well, Michael, it is pretty breathtaking, just the scope of all the attacks on environmental protections that this administration has put forward. I mean, a lot of this gets buried in all the other scandals and announcements and controversies that happen, but it, it's just across the board, across all the different agencies, not just EPA, but even down to financial disclosure disclosure requirements uh, for climate impacts from, from publicly traded companies. Uh, but absolutely, I, I think that one of the most significant environmental rollbacks that the administration has tried to push through is this rollback of fuel economy standards, which were promulgated under uh, President Obama. And there was a parallel uh, effort in California. And this would have saved a, consumers, drivers, a lot of money on gasoline uh, and a lot of health impacts and obviously a, a lot of impacts to the environment, particularly on uh, when it comes to climate change. So it was supposed to be a uh, pretty significant emissions impact of uh, 5% improvement per year of uh, carbon dioxide emissions in vehicles through uh, from 2021 to 2026. That was scaled back to 1.5% per year improvement. Now, I'm sure they would have loved to zero it out, but the science, even as much as they tried to manipulate the science under it, and you have EPA scientists uh, decrying what actually ended up coming out under the Trump administration, they couldn't manipulate the science enough to get it all the way to zero. So they're actually ironically getting uh, sued by right-wing groups uh, who are upset that there's any improvement at all, but it's still a major attack on our climate goals in uh, not just California, but in the United States. I mean, in California, almost half of our carbon footprint is related to transportation once you factor in oil refinery emissions. So messing with the fuel economy standards is is a major setback for the environment. I think that's, that's sort of front and center in terms of impact. The one thing I'll say is that because the rule has so many flaws in the science underpinning it, as I mentioned, that it's going to be held up uh, in litigation for a long time. It was already challenged immediately. And so that's going to take a while to work its way through the court. So we may not have a resolution until we get a new president. Uh, if we get a new president in January, who, uh, if it's Joe Biden, he can reverse the actions that were taken. Well, let's talk about climate with you, because certainly the Trump administration has been wont to just about overturn any environmental advances that occurred during the Obama administration. It's been sort of really kind of the anti-Obama um, in almost every way imaginable. But there also has, we've seen gutting of the Science Advisory Committee and firing of climate scientists uh, has been a big problem. They're deleting data also from government websites. I mean, it's almost as if climate change has disappeared in terms of a serious and, and existential threat. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in the administration, you're not really allowed to say the words climate change. Uh, so in any, a lot of data has been uh, taken out, as you mentioned, from websites. Now, a lot of these actions can be reversed pretty quickly. And at our Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at Berkeley Law, we're evaluating some different approaches and others as well. The Sabin Center at Columbia University has also put together a really good list. Some of this can be reversed. So things like data deletions, a science advisory council. I mean, if, if Biden is elected on, on day one, he can reverse a lot of these executive orders agencies can restore that data, which has been archived uh, by private groups elsewhere. Uh, and then things like litigation that's going forward. Uh, in some cases, those cases can be settled pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, executive orders can be changed. And the challenge is more on the regulatory rollbacks. You know, I, I think of the regulatory state in America sort of like a giant tanker ship, and it, and it takes years to, to turn that around. It's every move gets litigated, and that could take years to wind its way through the courts. That can be trickier. Uh, 
The one tool that if the Senate goes to the Democrats as well could be used to unwind some of these regulations pretty quickly is something called the Congressional Review Act, which says that Congress in a simple majority of vote with the president's signature can undo any regulation passed in the last 60 legislative days. And the Trump administration with Republicans in Congress used that when they first came into power in 2017 to undo a whole host of Obama era regulations. Democrats could have that opportunity as well now in January to undo some of these regulatory rollbacks, these weak environmental rules. They just have to do it carefully because the unintended consequence is that it can preclude these agencies from regulating in the future in that area. But, but that even, is what a tool about the that fact that you have so many conservatives now on the courts? Uh, you almost got packing of the courts, uh, Mitch McConnell's dream with conservatives and in some cases, uh, people who have judicial inexperience, to put it mildly again. Well, absolutely. And so the judiciary is the major check on administrative uh, changes on regulations that are promulgated. And we have we are seeing a major transformation in the judiciary that's likely to last a lifetime. But even some of these Trump appointed judges are finding flaws with these agency rollbacks. I mean, the the incompetence of these agencies in rolling back these regulations is actually pretty striking. And NYU's Institute of Policy Integrity has been tracking the win loss record of the Trump administration in court. They have 110 losses to just 18 wins. So that's only a 14% success rate in the courts. Now, to your point, that could that success rate could improve as more Trump judges, you know, who are uh, theoretically and, and I think demonstrated to have ideologically, uh, you know, biases against regulatory action. But even so, they haven't been very successful in overturning regulations to date, even with a judiciary that is trending more in favor of Trump. But I think long term, the Supreme Court in particular is really poised to roll back a lot of statutes and a lot of regulations and really try to unwind through the judiciary what they couldn't do legislatively to unwind the administrative state in America. That's something that a number of the justices have been been very forthright about, Alito, Thomas, and others. So that that is something that's going to be a long-term check on Democrats' uh, ambitions on, on environmental laws and regulations. Well, I want to get to our callers, but let me just ask you, Ethan, uh, about what I can try to crystallize as the argument that comes from the Trump administration. Uh, that is, uh, restrictions and regulations were holding back uh, economic advancement, were too um, bureaucratic and too stifling, uh, especially of innovation and, and particularly of profits. That's the argument, I think, encapsulated, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's the argument they like to make. And, and the data just doesn't simply uh, does not support that, um, because, first of all, you have to take into account public health impacts. And uh, Mustafa spoke very eloquently about the public health impacts, particularly on uh, disadvantaged communities, communities of color. And those public health impacts have a real economic toll, uh, not just on the productivity and the health of the people who are affected, but on our healthcare system. Also, in many instances, these regulations create new jobs. So, for example, I mean, here in California, we've had incredible success at boosting clean energy jobs, solar, wind, helping to bring the cost of those technologies down, but creating a lot of good jobs in the process. So that has to be factored in as well. So the coal industry, for example, is dwarfed now by solar industry jobs. So when you have in regulations that are designed to protect things like dirty uh, energy from coal, you're actually hurting jobs overall throughout the economy. So that whole cost equation that they've sort of put out there, that's also one of the things that has to be looked at by a Biden administration if he gets elected. And, and takes office in January. And let me take off from something you just said and go back to Mustafa on this. Mustafa Santiago Ali, um, there is uh, 
and has long been a kind of disproportionate, uh, almost call it hegemony of whites in the environmental movement. I suppose that's changing to some extent, but it's still of concern, isn't it? Uh, I mean, in, in just in terms of uh, representing racial justice and the needs for environmental justice, uh, in terms of particularly who's sitting on boards and who's at the top? Almost oh, definitely. And there's a fantastic set of work from Green 2.0. I was a founding member of that that actually take a look at, you know, many of our big green organizations, uh, foundations and others. And what you will find is that, you know, the boards do not look like America uh, in many instances, far from what America looks like. And if you look at uh, the leadership at the top uh, of many of these organizations that are framing out the direction that we're going to go in, um, the, the policies, the priority setting, you will not find one African-American or Latinx person who's leading one of those organizations. And that sends a message uh, to people across the country. Um, and it is an antiquated way of doing business. Thankfully, uh, there are those who are now evolving uh, and moving in the right direction. One, making the right partnerships. Two, making sure they're diversifying their organization. Uh, and then three, um, also making sure that uh, in relationship to their priority setting, that many of the folks who have been unseen and unheard um, are giving not only a seat at the table, but priority. And Emily, if I can go back to you, uh, Emily Holden again is environment reporter with The Guardian. Uh, I wonder if we could talk about uh, clean power plant, uh, uh, excuse me, the clean power plan uh, with you, an example of the administration not necessarily moving forward on its goals. Right. So the Clean Power Plan was the Obama administration's effort to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from the electricity sector. And what's important to keep in mind here is that this is just supposed to be the very first step among many. The world is really far behind on what it needs to do to slow climate change. We've already seen one degree Celsius of warming. We're on track for three degrees Celsius. And the U.S., as part of the International Paris Climate Agreement, agreed to do more. They put forth some goals and they said, we will come back and strengthen this. Now, the Trump administration is exiting the Paris Agreement. That will happen the day after the November election. And a President Joe Biden could re-enter it immediately. But what's, what you've seen happen is at a time when climate rules in the U.S. needed to be strengthened, according to really all of the expert scientists, nothing has happened. Uh, and you've also seen the Trump administration bolstering fossil fuels at every opportunity. Emily, could you also say something about the recently approved oil leasing program for the Arctic National uh, Wildlife Refuge in Alaska? I mean, this is going to have a real effect on the environment, on wildlife. I mean, there's uh, uh, not only going to be more oil and gas development, but there are going to be many birds at risk. There's going to be, well, polar bears and caribou at risk and many legal battles to be sure before this goes into operation. But how viable at this point? The Trump administration has said that they're going to try to lease parts of this land before the end of the year. And this is a, a historically very protected area. You mentioned Caribou. There is um, a, a, an indigenous tribe that um, has located kind of along the track of the Caribou. And it's very close to the species and its, its existence has been dependent on the species. So it's not just uh, animal protection. It's also a cultural protection. And uh, really, we don't know how soon an oil company might want to drill in an area like this, but with the lease sales, they would have the opportunity to. And experts will tell you also that oil and gas prices are slow, so low right now, and the Trump administration has been selling these leases for such a low amount 
that this really is not a good deal for the American public. And getting back to the Paris Accord for a moment, uh, I mean, even if Joe Biden is elected president, uh, the Trump removal of the United States from that pact takes place on November 4th. And that's the day after the election it means the United States would presumably join Iran and Turkey as the only major countries not in the 197 member pact. But uh, at, at this point, um, what can we project in terms of the timing on that? What do you what do you foresee? So that's a step that's going to happen automatically. Essentially, the Trump administration already gave notice that that would happen on November 4th. So we know they're going to do that. And what we will see then is really other countries who are working on the climate issue seriously looking to the U.S. and waiting to see how the election unfolds. And if there's a second Trump term, I think they will be very focused on what states are able to do. But that will have a really severe impact on what they're able to negotiate because the U.S. is the biggest historic climate emitter in the world. The current biggest emitter is, is China, but the U.S. has caused most of the problem. So other countries look to us and say, if we are going to do something very serious, we expect you to as well. Let me bring a caller aboard here. First caller is Brian. And again, you can join us at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. Welcome, Brian. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I wanted to comment... Um, on why we're talking about the Trump administration and what Trump has done um, and why we talk about what Obama has done. Um, our executive branch is really, really powerful in how climate regulation happens. I work with climate regulation, um, and that that's a problem for us. So I wanted to just say, until we work on reforming our democracy and having a function in Congress that can pass laws, they can stand up to judicial review um, every four years or every eight years. There's going to be whiplash or potential whiplash as people just start shuffling things around. Um, I'd love to hear what some of your panelists have to say, but mostly it's just a comment, a comment to the audience. That, like We need to talk about political process, not just what terrible things are happening today. Well, let me thank you for that call. Let me read a comment from Alex, which kind of dovetails here. Alex writes, what President Trump's administration is doing is clearly of great concern, but the more fundamental problem is that a president can put significant rules in place and the next can just reverse them and so on. Ethan, let me bring you back into this. Ethan Elkind? Yeah, well, I think it is it is a really good point. We saw a whole spate of environmental laws passed in the late 60s, early 70s, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, National Environmental Policy Act that we were talking about earlier. And all those laws delegated a lot of the rulemaking authority to agencies like EPA to implement it. And since then, industry has really mobilized to make sure that Congress is not in a position to pass any real major new environmental laws. The last uh, amendments we saw to the Clean Air Act were back in the George H.W. Bush administration. And so as a consequence of Congress not acting to address the emerging updated environmental challenges that we're facing, particularly climate change, it's been up to regulatory agencies like EPA to try to fill in the gaps. And that's exposed them to uh, judicial review that has overturned regulations in some cases. So I definitely think if we want to see strong action on the environment, it's got to come out of Congress because the regulatory state takes years to put things into motion. Um, and so that I think that that point is very well taken. We'll see what happens. You know, a lot of it's going to depend on the Senate. If the Senate changes hands as well as Joe Biden getting 
elected, perhaps there's an opportunity to pass some things on, on majority votes. But it's just really hard to get things through Congress. The Senate is heavily weighted towards rural areas that are much more dependent on, on fossil fuel production for jobs. So the dynamic is not favorable to seeing the kind of swift action that we want to see. But I think, you know, the point, and you were, as we we're talking about the Paris Agreement, the point about states is a really good one. And we've seen states step up and lead. And that's been an interesting counter reaction to Trump. Uh, and not just states and, and also cities too, but corporations have also uh, taken some strides as well. And I think a good example of state action is in California, as I was talking earlier about the rollback of the fuel economy rules, California actually separately negotiated a pact with four automakers to maintain their adherence to the Obama uh, regulations that were in place. Uh, and those automakers did so because they want to avoid all the legal challenges and uncertainty from this Trump uh, proposed rollback. Uh, but it's a good, good example of where California's authority uh, can get a lot done and other states are following suit. I think one more term of Trump, it's going to be pretty tough because they're going to they're going to try to unwind the sovereignty that states like California has to go farther than the federal government. But luckily, in a in a decentralized environment, we have the opportunity for states to try to step up and fill the void when the federal government is not acting. And let me step up uh, and bring in another caller here. That's Mark from Cotati. Mark, you're on the air. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Um uh, perhaps some of your guests can comment on the reversal that the uh, administration is trying on uh, protection of the waters of the United States. This would affect a large landmass, and if I can tie back to a couple issues you've been talking about, um, a lot of the area affected by this rollback is headwaters. Your connection is not a great one here, but I, I, I want the rollback of protection of waters is very important, and I'm glad you brought it up. Can I go to you on this, Emily? Emily Holden? Of course. Yes. So what we're talking about is the waters of the U.S. rule, which the Obama administration wrote to really expand the waters that were subject to federal standards. And so that included the kind of tributaries that flow into rivers and lakes and bigger bodies of water. And obviously, we know that if pollution enters one of those smaller bodies of water, it's going to end up in the bigger ones. That's how water flows. And those bigger ones are how we get our drinking water. Well, we will continue and talk more about the Trump record on the environment. Again, we invite you to join us. You can do that by phone, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about President Trump's record on the environment with Ethan Alkind, who is director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at the UC Berkeley School of Law and host of the Climate Break podcast. We're also talking with Mustafa Santiago Ali, vice president of environmental justice, climate and community revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation and Emily Holden, environment reporter for the Guardian. Let me go to some of your comments and remind you, you can join us by phone at 866-733-6786 if you want to be a part of the conversation or if you have questions or comments or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And struck by a tweet here, uh, well, actually a listener uh, email, Mustafa Santiago Ali from a listener who writes, when institutions roll back environmental regulations, they know will result in the deaths of people of color. Isn't that a kind of silent genocide? If not, what else would you call it? I mean, I think that that is a, a very strong 
um, term and, and definition for what is actually going on. Um, and many times we have this uh, environmental apartheid that's happening in our country where we push certain people uh, into certain locations, then disinvest in those communities and, and therefore shorten their lives. So I would agree uh, with the, um, you know, with the caller. And we bring on Joseph as a caller next from Walnut Creek. Joseph, welcome. Good morning. and uh, Thank you for the show. I uh, appreciate the time to speak. Um, many of you have spoken about uh, things that are going to um, change in the event that Joe Biden's elected and how things could get rolled back and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, it's not a foregone conclusion. So I'd like to know your thoughts on uh, what the future might hold under a, under a second Trump administration and how the environment might suffer. Thank you for your All right. Uh, thank you for that. And we'll talk about perhaps uh, some of uh, Vice President Biden's views uh, on the environment. But Emily Holden, can I go to you on this with Trump? Another second term? What does it mean? What will it mean? Yeah, in a, in a second term, that would be a, a pretty dismal outlook, especially for climate change. And as we were talking about earlier, the regulatory process is very slow and you do see a sort of pendulum swing between administrations uh, when you're electing a Republican and then a Democrat and then a Republican again. And so a lot of the problems that we're going to have to face are going to be at the point where we can't wait for regulation. Congress needs to have a role. And we know that Congress has a lot of difficulty passing significant legislation. So a, a lot will depend on whether Democrats win back the Senate and whether they win the White House. There is a positive uh, element to this, uh, regardless of who becomes president. And I'm going to go back to you, Mustafa Santiago Ali, on this, because I happen to hear you on Amy Goodman talking about, well, the problems in Flint, Michigan, which are legion with respect particularly to water. But you were also emphasizing what's going on in Sparksburg, South Carolina, where there's been revitalization, less cost to energy and more jobs and community collaboration that really brought a lot of that about, and particularly in conjunction with something Ethan brought up, that is connection with local and state governments as opposed to relying on the federal and they cleaned brownfields and they uh, got super fun sites cleaned up and so forth and uh, this is uh, from your perspective a real possibility of hope uh, again just on the local level yeah most definitely we can revitalize our most vulnerable communities we just have to be intentional about the actions and the priority setting uh, and, and helping folks to leverage resources under the you know, the, the work of Harold Mitchell, who's the executive director of the Regenesis Project there in Spartanburg, South Carolina, they were able to take a $20,000 environmental justice small grant and leverage it into almost $300 million in changes. A community that was labeled as the other side of the tracks. And as you mentioned, they had brownfields and Superfund sites. They had, uh, you know, uh, shotgun housing. They had bad transportation routes, lack of jobs, lack of access to health care, which is important to so many people. And fast forward, you know, been able to get 500 green homes into the community, which lowered their electricity costs from three to four hundred dollars a month down to sixty seven dollars a month. The, the future is um, on the cleaned up brownfield sites, actually putting a 35 acre solar farm in, which will zero out people's electricity costs. They got five new healthcare care uh, centers uh, in the area and a mobile health care unit um, to help to deal with some of the pre-existing conditions, but also to make sure that people could be healthy moving forward. So these are the types of things we can do in Appalachia. We can do it in the Rust Belt. We can do it on the Gulf Coast. There's so many different places. But, you know, we just got to be intentional about making it happen. And, and, and it also helps us to lower the impacts from climate change, because when we get healthy, 
you know, energy efficient housing. It helps to lower the costs. When we're focused on our transportation routes, it helps to lower the impacts that are happening from climate change. Um, and when we are focused on giving folks the skills um, to create their own jobs, then, you know, we're really empowering people for a 21st century America. Now we're talking just about political will here, aren't we, for the most part? And, we, are, uh, we are, but if I could just add real quickly, because Ethan and Emily kind of hit on this, we sometimes forget the power that exists inside of our vote and how that can change dynamics, both on the local, the county, the state and the federal level. So folks need to, one, make sure that they're doing good research and pushing candidates to do the right thing and to live up to their commitments. And it doesn't matter if they're Democrat, Republican or independent. If they don't do that, then remove them. But the other side of that coin is that when you can't find someone who represents your views, then you got to run yourself. And that's how we change the dynamics that are going on on Capitol Hill in our state houses is by supporting those good men and women who really want to see real change happen and are not just putting window dressing on top of things. And Ethan Elkhan, let me go back to you with a question from a listener named Kirk who writes, can your guest say where the U.S. would be on coal ash protections if Cass Sunstein and the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs had not blocked EPA regulations back in 2009? Well, Cass Sunstein is a controversial figure. He's the person who put this sort of cost-benefit analysis into, into regulation. We were referring a little bit earlier to the social cost of carbon. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's worth casting blame on any one particular actor here, but uh, there's no question that if we have a better process for evaluating the costs and benefits, the true costs and benefits of any policy, and that's something the Trump administration has tried to undermine, we'll get better regulations going forward. And the Trump administration has been very worried about looking at things like the social cost of carbon because they know that if you promote technologies like coal and allow coal ash pollution to go forward, that it's going to have actually a negative economic cost once you factor in all of the other uh, factors that, that go on, whether it's public health and, and, and uh, long-term damage from uh, environmental ruin as well. So uh, I, don't think it's, I don't know if it's worth casting any particular blame on, on anyone. I think we do know what the Trump administration is trying to do, and I think there's an opportunity with the new Biden administration, if he gets elected, to reverse a lot of these changes. Well, there's been blame with the Trump administration, and in fact, uh, since we started talking with you, Ethan, about uh, uh, reducing vehicle emissions and the need for perhaps a strong national policy along those lines, the Trump administration, with its record on regulatory rollback, uh, simply shows it's not up to the challenge. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen the challenge when you don't staff government well with experts, you don't listen to expert advice. We've seen that with COVID and the federal response, the, the denial and the efforts to undermine scientific responses to the virus. The same thing in a way has been happening on the environment where there's been a, a real ignoring of the expert data and I think a deliberate effort to try to obfuscate uh, some of that science. And we saw that at EPA with the fuel economy rollbacks in particular. Uh, and that's why they couldn't even justify zeroing out the uh, um, rollback, which is what they wanted to do on fuel economy, they had to actually put in place some minor rollback or some minor protections on fuel economy just because they couldn't fudge the science that much. So this is uh, this has been a posture we've seen throughout the Trump administration, but it's particularly acute when it comes to the environment, when it's a, a matter of, of public health. And I should add one other thing, too, which is that there, there's an issue here of enforcement as well. I mean, that's not something we talk about, but EPA enforcement on polluters has declined dramatically. And I don't think it's an accident 
accident that you you've been seeing more accidents, more industrial accidents. We had a major chemical spill uh, in the in the Houston area, for example, recently. Uh, so this, this is what happens when you don't listen to the experts and you don't follow through on what government's mission is there to do, which is to protect protect its citizens. Let me bring another caller on, and that's John in Walnut Creek. John, join us, please. We are on the air. John, are you with us? This, this, oh, this oh, there is Juan in Danville. Are you there? Oh, if this is John, go ahead. Okay. My point that I'd like to make is a lot of these restraints that we keep putting on our companies, the United States, to apparently meet better EPA standards and stuff, in the end, what ends up happening to a lot of products, I mean, you use like hard, pre-finished hardware flooring, for example. I'm a contractor. What happens is they can't afford to do it because they can't meet the EPA requirements here. And in the end, we end up buying it from China. So the end result is, as far as the earth goes, we end up polluting the earth more with a manufacturing company that is manufacturing something at a much lower, if any, kind of restraints in as far as emissions go. And then a big thing, as a side note, by the way, we end up losing jobs in the United States. So I, I don't think that the uh, full extent of impact is being considered by a lot of these people who are, you know, saying that, you know, we need to keep these EPA things at a higher requirement. And that's that's pretty much my comment. The long looking at the long, the big picture. Yeah, let me thank you for that, uh, John. And let me go back to you on this, Emily Holden. Uh, again, it gets back to this argument that we're hearing from the Trump administration that uh, they're uh, they're loosening things up so people can do things and don't have to rely, as John is suggesting, on other nations and uh, put America first, so to speak. Well, we know that the U.S. certainly does export a lot of its pollution, not just in what we're importing that's being manufactured abroad at lower standards, but also if you look at our, our plastic pollution, which we've literally sent a, abroad for decades, uh, that countries don't even want to take anymore. China doesn't want to take our waste anymore. So yes, there's absolutely truth to that. I think the question will always be, how much will this cost and how much will it, it benefit the people, the public of the U.S.? And the Trump administration is often focused on what the benefit would be to industry and undercounted some of the benefits to people. But we're hearing certainly from the Trump administration spokespeople, uh, for example, I'm thinking particularly of Andrew Wheeler, EPA administrator, that a lot of what they're doing is advancing American energy and American independence. Uh, and they also say they're protecting the environment. Yes, that's right. They say that they are able to do this while still being protective of the environment. But in many cases, the rollbacks that they have initiated or completed are in direct conflict with what the science says should happen. So there, there's certainly some truth that if the U.S. doesn't do it, it's going to happen somewhere else. And that might not be as environmentally sound. <clears throat> but I think the counter to that argument is that we have to start somewhere. Uh, so if we're just going to say... And, you know, the U.S. isn't isn't going to uh, require that because it would be worse coming from somewhere else Then every nation could say that we could never see significant improvement. Can I ask you to weigh in on this, Ethan? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's what the administration says, that they want to favor U.S. energy interests, but they haven't been consistent about that at all. It's been about favoring specific energy sectors within the U.S. The solar industry, for example, they've really tried to disfavor, even though that's one of America's uh, fastest growing sources of electricity. So, for example, at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is kind of an obscure agency for a lot of people, it regulates uh, the interstate electricity grid. They have tried to disfavor solar by putting pricing, additional prices on solar and trying to help benefit the coal industry. So that's an example of where they haven't been consistent. Similarly, on electric vehicles, you know, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, we would have seen a continuation of federal tax credits for electric vehicles, for electric vehicle purchases. At this point, those tax credits have been phased out for American manufacturers of electric vehicles. If you want to buy a Tesla, if you want to buy a, a GM, a Chevy Bolt, for example, those companies now no longer qualify for the tax credit while foreign electric vehicles are still grandfathered in under the old law, at least for a little while until they, until they reach a certain number of sales. So if they were really serious about boosting American energy, they would be focusing on boosting clean technologies, zero emission vehicles, renewable energy. That's the future. That's where other uh, countries around the world are moving. China and, and the European Union have stringent standards. The U.S. is at risk now of falling behind on the energy of the future. And so I think their rhetoric about America first on energy is really belied by the impacts and the policies that they push forward. Well, this gets back, uh, if I may, to you, Mustafa. Uh, Mustafa Santiago Ali actually resigned from the Trump administration in March of 2017. And it was because of steep budget cuts, but it was also because of the threat of uh, doing away with the Office of Environmental Justice, which didn't take place. But all of those steep budget cuts put you, I think, in a position where you just felt you couldn't serve in the administration anymore. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it was also about you know, I had worked in over 500 communities uh, across the country, and I knew that the actions that they said that they were going to move forward on were going to have huge impacts in those communities, that they were going to shorten people's lives, and unfortunately, they were going to also take people's lives. Um, and, and I knew that I couldn't be a part of that. Um, so that's why when I resigned, I shared the letter that they say over a million people read, and pointing out to them you know, all these incredible resources and examples of success um, that I would hope that they would pay attention to and then figure out how they build upon them um, uh, and, and utilize them in a way that could help them to actually have had a successful uh, relationship with the environment and public health and climate. Um, but unfortunately, you know, there's a, an old saying that says that when someone shows you who they are, believe them. I believe them, um, but I had no idea that it would be as egregious um, as it has been. And again, Mustafa Santiago Ali is Vice President of Environmental Justice now, Climate and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation. Emily Holden, we've got a tweet from Michael who wants to know, and I know you've written about this, what is Joe Biden's environmental track record? Has he shown leadership as senator or vice president? We should mention that there are a lot of environmentalists who have been critical of uh, Vice President Biden because uh, he's not on board on Green New Deal and he's not on board on fracking, stop uh, secession of fracking and so forth. But what do we know about his track record? Well, as vice president in the Obama administration, he uh, oversaw and was part of many of the regulations that we've been talking about that are getting rolled back. He also introduced one of the, the first climate bills when he was in the Senate. And the, the proposal that he's put forward on climate change is, is very significant. I think a lot of environmental groups 
say that it's a good plan. It's $2 trillion. He would try to eliminate emissions from the U.S. essentially by 2050. He would do that very quickly with electricity by 2035. But as we've discussed over and over again, all, a lot of that is up to Congress. And so it, it can't be left just to Biden. Now, on, on fracking, as you mentioned, he says that he would not call for a ban on fracking. That's not something the president could really do without Congress anyway. But the reason that he's doing that is is because it would really alienate a lot of his potential moderate supporters, people in swing states like Pennsylvania. But it's fairly safe to say that in terms of the environment, we're not exactly talking about Tweedledum and Tweedledee here, as they used to argue that uh, different parties represented. Uh, there is a definite difference, particularly, Ethan, we can say dramatically in terms of attitude towards science overall. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no question the candidates are really light years apart. And you look at who their supporters are, just as, as an example of that, you have the fossil fuel industry, some of the worst polluters, you know, really lining up uh, with the Trump administration. And then you've got the environmental groups on, on Joe Biden's side. So uh, I think the election, you know, will be a real stark choice when it comes to the environment. The one thing I would add is just in response to that caller about what if um, Biden doesn't win. You know, I, I think we should not take our eye off the ball, regardless of who wins, about what can be done locally and at the state level. And so locally, a lot of it boils down to land use policies, how much we encourage people not to have to drive single occupant vehicles and boost transit, boost apartment buildings near transit. States have a lot of authority over their electricity grids and can promote decarbonization through renewable energy technologies. And they can also promote electric vehicles through uh, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. That's something that the st states have authority over so on that good positive note we will conclude now ethan alkine good to have you with us thank you for joining us thank you michael and thank you mustafa santiago ali also good to have you with us this morning i appreciate it thank you and thanks to emily holden good to have you as well emily thank you thank you so much for covering this important issue and good to have all of you our listeners with us we're here with you on the forum program monday through friday 9 to 11 let us know what you think about what you hear or would like to hear by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And for all of us at KQED, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.